Well, good morning, everybody. Why don't we make our way back to our seats? It's good to see everyone today. I'd like to add my voice to what's already been said and welcome you to church this morning. So good to see everyone here in the sanctuary, and my guess is because of the holiday weekend, our online congregation might be a little larger than normal. A lot of people traveling, but it's good to be together in whatever form that is today. It really is. And uh, I do want to welcome you to our Memorial Day weekend at Grace. I know you just were seated a moment ago, but if you're able to, would you stand for a moment with me once again? Would we stand together? Before we begin the message today, I'd like to invite you to join together as a church family, and let's take a moment of silence and thank God for those who have given the ultimate sacrifice of their lives so that we could enjoy what we're doing today, and that is choosing to worship together, choosing to be together, and um, making that choice freely today. And so would you join with me and bow just for a few moments this morning? Thank you. We are so grateful today for the sacrifice of so many in our nation uh, for the freedom to practice our faith, and I'm so grateful for that. Thank you for taking a moment. You may be seated. We're working our way through the book of James, and I don't know about you, but the last many weeks since we've started James, uh, I felt like and have felt like that I've been drinking from the fire hydrant. There's so much about the book of James that is so wonderful, and every weekend, I want to thank our pastors who have helped us to understand what James has written, and not only what he's written, but how it applies to us. Now, James does a lot of that himself in what is a very practical book, and uh, it's a wonderful thing for us to look at it together. We've made our way to chapter 2, and so if you have a Bible and you can grab that real quick, or if you have your uh, device, you want to tap over to James chapter number 2. We're going to start with the first few verses of James chapter 2 this morning and, uh, and see what the Lord has to say to us through this book and this chapter. James chapter 2 verse 1 says, My brothers, and this is understood of course to mean in this context brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We've been looking at genuine faith throughout the book of James and will continue to do so for many weeks to come. But in this part of chapter 2, the big idea is simply that genuine faith will cause us to love the world as God does. Genuine faith will cause us to love the world as God does. Would you bow one more time with me and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in the Scriptures today? Father, we just come to you now and we thank you that we can freely this weekend open up the Bible and hear what you have said to us. Your voice is clearly stated in the Word and we're thankful for that, Lord. We are so grateful for the privilege to open up the Scriptures and understand and hear your voice. I'm praying, Lord, that the Holy Spirit come close to us. Thank you for inspiring the words we're about to read. And now, Spirit of God, illuminate our heart. Help us, God, to understand what is presented. I pray, God, you'll bless every part of the next few moments, the presentation. Help it to be biblically faithful. Help me to speak accurately and with integrity. And, Lord, also help us to receive what is spoken as your word, Lord and hear your voice. We thank you for that, and we commit this time to you, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Everybody say amen. Amen. Brenda and I, uh, on occasion, and actually just a few days ago, every once in a while, we'll like to go to thrift stores in our area just to poke around and look around and to see what's in this particular store. Now, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I always find something in a thrift store. Mine isn't so much the clothing and all the racks of clothing, but I like to go to the electronics section and kind of go back in time and see all this stuff that is for sale for relatively not much money at all. And we were at a thrift store several days ago, and Brenda was off doing kind of whatever shopping she was in that area. And I walked over to the electronics and the houseware, and I, I saw it on the third shelf. It was in a yellow, tattered, original box. And I looked on the box and it said, GE, automatic steam iron. And I thought, wow, I'm going back to my childhood right now. And it was. I remember seeing that, Pastor Greg. I remember seeing that iron on our ironing board in Chicago. I remember seeing that. It was ultimately, I Googled it after the occasion. I found out it was actually invented, that particular model, in the late 1950s. And so my parents must have had one for quite a few years for me to see that when I came around. And I saw it and I thought, you know, we need a new iron. Our iron, believe it or not, is 22 years old. And so it's on its way out. And I decided, you know, if we have a 22-year-old iron, why not have a 70-year-old iron? 
And so I asked Brenda, I said, Brenda, look at this. This brings me back to my childhood. And she said, how much is it? I said, $7. Now, where can you get an iron for $7? I said, I, I don't think I'd like to get it. I know it sounds weird, but I'd like to get it. She said, well, go, go plug it in over there and see if it works. I plugged it in, and it worked. It heated up. And I thought, this is great. So I went to the front when we were checking out, and I bought the 1950s GE automatic steam iron. I got home, and I plugged it into our outlet just to make sure, you know, our outlet, different outlet, and it heated up. I thought, this is great. Fast forward to this morning. I was getting ready for church this morning, and I was going through my shirt. I pulled out my shirt, and I thought, you know what, this needs to be ironed. So I went downstairs, and I put the shirt on the ironing board, and I got the automatic steam GE iron. I began to iron my shirt. Now, I, I don't I don't mean to brag, but God has given me a spirit of discernment to decipher between steam and smoke. <laughs> and I used that spiritual gift this morning because it didn't take long at all. As I began to press the fabric, I saw steam originally, and then I saw a moment later more steam. And it quickly became apparent after just a few moments that something significant was happening. I was literally on the verge of burning my shirt. And so I, you know, chalked it up, babe. You don't even know this. First time she's hearing this. That GE iron, it's out. No more. I went back to the 22-year-old iron and coaxed another use out of it this morning to iron my shirt. <laughs> When we're looking at James chapter 2, we only need to read a few words into it to hit something real significant. It doesn't take a long time to just a few words, in fact, of verse 1 before we hit something very, very significant. And to the hearers of the original words of James, they would understand it as well. Look at verse 1 with me again. James writes, and I love the way that the New King James writes it. He says this, my brothers and sisters, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this next phrase, the Lord of glory with partiality. Now, we're going to get to partiality in just a moment, but don't skip past that phrase, the Lord of glory. When the first century believers who were dispersed received the letter from James and they heard this beginning few moments of this, what we now call verse 1 of chapter 2, James is saying, as you hold faith, faith, faith rather, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, don't do so with partiality. The Lord of glory simply being understood to this first century audience would be a term that Jesus Christ is the full manifestation of God. And so, James being one of the first books written in the New Testament, Pastor Don reminded us of that in our introduction several weekends ago, given the fact that it's one of the first books written in the New Testament, this means that the earliest Christians considered Jesus to be God. It was not some later invention that someone decided we might as well believe that. No, they believed it from the very beginning. James says, if you have faith in Jesus the Lord of glory, you must do some things. In other words, early Christians, there were no undercover early Christians. 
They believed in Christ and not only in who he was, but they believed in who he was as God manifest in the flesh in strong, unmistakable words. And that's interesting because of who is saying it. Not only what they're saying, that he is God, but who is saying that to the believers? It's James. We learned this also that it's the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine, those of you who have siblings, especially if you have a brother, saying that of your brother? Now, I have an identical twin brother. He's four minutes older than me. I can't imagine making that statement about my brother. I don't want to make too fine a point here, but it's not only what James was saying about Jesus to the believers, he's the Lord of glory, it was the fact he was making that statement about a family member. He was saying, I believe the one that I share a mother with, I believe he is God. And James goes on to say, as you hold that belief, that faith, as you are that committed to God and who he is, here's the command next, don't show partiality. Don't be prejudiced. Now, perhaps a question in the 21st century based on the first century would be appropriate right now, and that is by our life, in our life, does our faith in Jesus as Lord of glory cause us to love and to care and treat everyone equally? That's a question only we can answer ourselves. Does our faith cause us to not have partiality? If I say the phrase toy story, what is in your thought bubble right now? If your parents, for sure, you know what that is, especially parents in the mid-90s, like we were, you know what Toy Story is. How many of you can raise a hand and say, yeah, Todd, I know what Toy Story is. Raise your hand. Look around, everybody. Lots of people, right? Toy Story. It's, it's, it's a great movie. It's a franchise now. Toy Story. In your thought bubble, when I said Toy Story, maybe was Woody or Buzz Lightyear, maybe Mr. Potato Head. And some of you in your thought bubble not only had words, but you had a soundtrack with your words. You heard of a song in your head. You've got a friend in me. Don't start singing. We don't want to quench the spirit. You've got a friend in me. It's a great song. You've got a friend in me. It's the theme song of Toy Story and all the subsequent movies. It was written by a guy named Randy Newman. I remember the first time I saw Toy Story back in the late 90s, and I heard that song, and I thought, that's a cool song. I like that song. It's catchy. It makes you feel good. It's just a fun, happy song. But for some of you, perhaps, who are not as advanced in age as I am, you may not know that Randy Newman, the guy that wrote that song, that wasn't his first song. He wrote songs decades before. In fact, Pastor, I remember the first Randy Newman song I ever heard. It was 1977. That's a long time ago, isn't it? I was a kid in Chicago, and I was listening to the radio, and Randy Newman came on the radio, and I'll never forget the song as long as I live. The song started this way. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason. You remember that one, Wes? Short people got no reason to live. Now, some of you younger folks think I'm joking. There really is a song written by Randy Newman, Mr. Toy Story. 
in the 70s called short people. And I don't mind telling you, when I first heard that on the radio, I was offended. In fact, I'm not the only one. You know, in 1978, state delegate Isaiah Dixon, who was five feet five, attempted to introduce legislation to make it illegal to play short people on the radio? True story. True story. A lot of people got mad about that, including short seven-year-olds in Chicago. When it came out, lots of people, they, they didn't realize, of course, that Randy Newman, at least he's admitting that it was satire. He was making, poking fun at our, 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 our tendency to categorize. But that's what we do, don't we? Let's be honest. As human beings, we, we tend to easily categorize people. We, we tend to, I'm speaking personally too, we tend to draw hard lines of distinction. Uh, concepts like favoritism and, and discrimination and, and prejudice and racism and chauvinism and bigotry. We hear all about that on a regular basis. Why? Because it almost comes naturally for us. And James is reminding that audience in the first century and this audience in the 21st century that that has no place in the body of Christ. Those things, those distinctions, those categorizations, those those favoritism ideas have no place as a child of God. If you need a reason why, the Lord of glory, as revealed in the Old Testament and New Testament, He showed no partiality. Look at... Uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Read the words in the Torah in the first five books. Uh, Deuteronomy 10 says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial. Look in the New Testament. Peter, when he realized that God, that the God of the Jews, his God, his Jewish people God, was now pouring out his spirit upon the Gentiles. Look at, uh, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth after that happened and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. God does not discriminate. He doesn't pay attention to economic status. He doesn't pay attention to race. He doesn't pay attention to nationality, to class, to political party, or any such thing. Is there anyone here today at Grace glad that God doesn't discriminate? Praise God. I'm so glad that he doesn't play favorites. He is not, the Bible tells us, a respecter of persons. And as divided as we are in our moment in time that we live, I'd like to remind you in context that James lived in an age that was much more prejudiced than we were. They were extremely partial. They were extremely based on prejudice and hatred, based on class or ethnicity or religious background or nationality. And one of the greatest things about the early church is that through the power of the Holy Spirit and faith placed in that Lord of glory, they were a group of men and women who rose above the discrimination. They amazed the first century uh, officials on how they could gather together people from this side of the railroad tracks and that side of the railroad tracks and that ethnic background. And all of them came together not to celebrate their differences, but to celebrate their great Lord of glory. People of God came and were remarkable to those that saw them. However, for Christians, sometimes that was a process, right? Uh, think with me for a moment. Look, look around the church right now, if you're in the building here. J- 
just glance around. Would you do that? You've already done that at the break time. But just glance around. Just kind of look as many people as you can right now. So much variety. Can I just say it this way? Only God could do this. Why? Because we're so different. Not, not all of you are perfect. You're tall. There's so much difference. There's so many different backgrounds. There's so many family situations. And yet we gather together on a regular basis and lift up the Lord of glory together. Only God could do that. And the first century church was reminded by James, in the midst of that demonstration, work hard not to show partiality. For Christians, it didn't always come easy. It wasn't automatic. Like most things that we read about in James and have heard about and will still hear about in future chapters, it doesn't automatically happen. It requires a sacrifice to the presence of God and the will of God for our life to be formed and made more into his image so now we aren't as partial as we used to be. I thought of a song as I was preparing for this weekend. We used to sing it when I was growing up in Sunday school. Some of you, perhaps, if you grew up in church, it was a simple song, but so much truth to it. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. How many of you believe that's true? How many of you ever heard that song? Yeah, a lot of you have. But you know what happens? Sometimes as we get older and more life experience, we get a little jaded sometimes. And I'm speaking more for myself probably than anybody else. And if I was really truthful today, I probably would sing it differently from time to time in my life. Jesus loved the little children, all the children of the world. <laughs> but as for me, I honestly do prefer them just like me. But Jesus loves the little children of the world. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard, it's a process to say, no, I'm not going to allow distinction and lines to be drawn. It's why James wrote this chapter. A life of genuine faith with no favoritism is a learning process to speak like Jesus, to do like Jesus, and in James 2, to see like Jesus. Look once again at, at verse 1 in just a moment. The first thing I think James 2 reminds us of, three quick things, but the first one is that shallow discrimination, it warps our perspective. It really does. When you look at, at verse 1, we've read it now a few times, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That, that word partiality, if you were to drilled down to the very essence of its etymology, right into the root cause of it, the Greek root, the original language root of that word partiality. You literally would read it this way, to receive someone according to the face. So what James is saying is as you claim and name the name of Christ, don't just receive someone by what you see. He goes on in a moment to speak of a hypothetical to demonstrate this, to example this for us. If we receive simply according to the face, we're receiving according to external distinction. We're judging the book by its cover instead of its content. And here's the hypothetical, verse 2. For if a man, James says, 
Wearing a golden ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. We're not told if it's a church service or a, a gathering, a judicial gathering of the church people. It's just a, a come into your assembly, and a, a rich man comes in, and you can tell he's rich by his clothing and his rings. And then a poor man in shabby clothing comes in also. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, here's the VIP section for you, what you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Our perspective is warped when we show favoritism. What do you mean, Todd? The same poor people that they have relegated to the corner, James goes on to say, are the very people upon whom God has built his kingdom. It's the poor people, James says, who have nothing else to depend on who gladly receive the word of God, who gladly say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. If we favor people, we miss that. And we begin to diminish the very ones that Jesus Christ gives faith to. In fact, Jesus himself, when he came, he came as a baby to a generally poor family. Favoritism. It warps our perspective. It warps our perspective for what God has done. I wrote down a few things. When we placed our faith in Christ, Jesus forgave us. Praise God. He treated us just like he does everyone who places their faith in him for salvation. Our wealth didn't matter. Our skin color didn't matter. Our education didn't matter. Our appearance didn't matter. Our gender didn't matter, our history didn't matter, and it didn't matter if we were religious or not. We were treated equally, we were forgiven equally, we were adopted equally, we were saved equally. It's because God does not make external distinctions. He shows no partiality. It's what He does. But favoritism can also warp our perspective on how God thinks and sees. Perhaps you've heard of the story of Samuel the prophet going to Jesse's house. Samuel had been told by God that he was to go and anoint a new king. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 that prior to going or as he was going, God came to Samuel and spoke this to him in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And perhaps you know the story. One by one, Jesse brought his boys, and God said to Samuel, not him, not him, not him, not him. They got through the whole group of them. And Samuel turned to Jesse and said, is that all? Is that all you got? Jesse said, well, there's one more. He's out on the pasture tending sheep. The prophet said, bring him in. I'll stay here till you do that. And they brought David in. And 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12 says, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, that's fair complected, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. But that's not what the Lord was looking at. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. God looks at the heart. He doesn't make external distinctions. I think secondly, when it comes to Scripture in James chapter 2, it also reminds us that when it comes to people, Jesus has done globally what we are learning to do 
locally. Here's what I mean by that. The word Jesus, the name Jesus, we've been told, I think, earlier in our series, is only mentioned twice in the book of James, two times. In the first verse of chapter 1, and in the first verse that we were reading just a moment ago in chapter 2, two times Jesus is referenced. And some who have had a problem with James throughout history, they thought that was problematic. You don't talk about Jesus enough, James. This is the proof. Only twice he's mentioned. However, I'd like to suggest to you today that while the mentions of Jesus and the Christology, to use a great theological phrase, the Christology of James is rather faint in the verbalizing of the name Jesus, I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus is assumed throughout James. The idea of the Savior, the Lord of glory, permeates the book of James. Now, maybe later on today or maybe a quick trip tomorrow, if you, if you leave Baltimore and you go across the Bay Bridge heading to the eastern shore, I don't think you're going to base whether or not that bridge is going to hold your car up just on what you can see. But as you make your way across the bridge, you're probably going to believe that underneath the asphalt is rebar and concrete and pylons in the very bed of the bay. You're going to believe that something you can't see is there. I'd like to suggest to you in the book of James, that's Jesus. He's in the midst. He's at the foundation of the book of James. We may hear Jesus spoken softly in James, but as you dig a little bit deeper, we're going to find doctrinal foundation wrapped up in the wall-breaking, division-smashing work of Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. Into the discrimination of first century Israel, step God manifested in the flesh. Why? To fulfill the law that had been given as the moral code centuries before. Into that situation, steps Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 3. I don't think I have it all on the screen, but Galatians chapter 3 verse 23. Paul the apostle writes and he says this, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Did you catch it? The law was there on purpose as a guardian to bring us to a place that Jesus enters the scene and now we can be justified by faith in that Savior. Keep reading verse 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then verse 28, I think it is on the screen. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You just, there's something about the unity of the body of Christ. I I was in a pre-service meeting upstairs. And I had two or three people come. Todd, can I pray with you and for you for today? I said, absolutely. And every single one of them were different than me. But God brings us together. God shows us how a unified body of believers operates. Cross current, when you come on Thursday, you look across the room and you see him or her and you think, oh my goodness, they're weird. 
I wouldn't do stuff like that. You know what God's doing? He's bringing disparate people, weird people together, and we're going to worship God together. There's something beautiful about understanding that Jesus has done already for us through his life and his death and his resurrection. He has made us all one. Now we locally get to do that as we walk forward with those that are around us, to see them the way God sees them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, the same writer, Paul, reminds a Gentile group of people, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We're learning to do day by day what Jesus has already done for us as believers, and that is to break down Verse 8 tells us in James chapter 2, James goes on to remind the believers, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's reaching back to use the scriptures to interpret the scriptures. He's reaching back to Leviticus to remind them of what the royal law is, or Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love the Lord, your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's reminding them of that royal law. And he's saying, if you, in the midst of this favoritism command, if you really do fulfill the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But keep going on. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you commit, don't commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. James is reminding them that there's a solution for the favoritism. And it begins with seeing people as your neighbor and loving them as you love God and as you love yourself. I think lastly, James reminds us that favoritism, discrimination, prejudice, there is a solution. Favoritism is overcome with mercy. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And then he wraps up with three or four wonderful words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In this exceptionally practical book, James reminds us at the end of this passage of Scripture of the how-to of not being partial. The how-to is mercy. When you see him or her later today, and they're not like you, and the tendency is to draw lines of distinction and devalue internally, James would remind us, no, give mercy. 
Perhaps the bottom line is this. Mark and team, you can go ahead and come on up. The bottom line is this. May we look at and act with people how Jesus looked at and acted with us. He gave us mercy. I, I don't know exactly where you came from in your spiritual walk. My, my guess is that most of us here today are believers in Jesus. We follow him. We name the name of Christ, the Lord of glory. He's our savior. We have put our faith and complete trust in him alone. And I want to remind you and all of us here today, when we could not be good enough, Jesus gave us mercy. We didn't deserve it, did we? When we were guilty, Jesus extended mercy. And the reason why that mercy triumphs over judgment isn't because we make it that way, that we furrow our brow and grin, grit, and just do it. That's not why mercy overcomes judgment. But because in the great story of the gospel, one day mercy and judgment traded places. The giver of mercy switched and took on the judgment that I deserved. And the one who deserved judgment switched and I was given mercy. I can't get my mind around it most days because it's too awesome of a thought that despite my guilt, because of faith in Christ, I am given mercy. And now we who have made that choice, we who deserve nothing but judgment, we have had someone step in for us who absorbed the punishment that we deserved so that we could stand in mercy, clothed with the righteousness of the one who was judged, now made acceptable and brought back into relationship with the holy God. And may I leave you with one future-oriented reminder. Because of this, there's coming a day when we will stand in heaven. The Apostle John said it this way, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Grace community, there's coming a morning or day when as believers we will stand on the ultimate level ground in heaven from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And shoulder to shoulder, we will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. I plan to be there. Chuck, I know you'll be there. Chuck, I know you'll be there. Pastor Greg will be leading us in the throng. Pastor Don's going to be there leading us in the throng. You're going to be there, right? Right? You're going to be there, right? You guys are going to be there, right? And what's going to matter is not what divides us or is what different about us. The only thing that's going to matter is the one who extended mercy, took upon himself the judgment that we deserve. And because of that transaction, we now who believe in that as the reason for our hope, we now stand before the Lord of glory and we say, praise God forever and ever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we will stand without partiality, without distinction, without prejudice, and we will give God glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Praise God. Level ground among God's people. I know we don't do it all that often, but I love for you. I love to invite you on this weekend to come and stand with me. Come. And stand with me on level ground right here at the altar. Todd, what's going to happen? We're just going to worship God. We're just going to lift up the Lord. So if you're a believer in Jesus, nothing weird is going to happen to you. We're just going to worship the Lord together. They're going to sing a song. We're going to lift up our voice in song. And together, no one higher than anybody else. No one distinct from anyone else. Just gather in as far close as you can, everybody. As much as you can. Come close to the front. We're going to do what one day we're going to do in heaven. We're going to do it right now. We're going to lift up Jesus. Look around one more time at the people at the altar here. Look at the difference, but then understand that's not what brings us together. No partiality. What brings us together is the one we have placed our faith in. He is the Lord of glory. Father, I pray today as we sing and as we lift up our voice together on level ground, you would receive, Lord, faith risen to you. You would receive it, God. You're the Christ. You're the Lord of glory. You were crucified. You were buried and you rose again for this moment so we together as a church family could lift up our voice and our hearts and do in preparation for what we will one day do forever, the worship of you. I pray you'll receive it in Jesus' name for your glory. Let everybody say amen. Amen, amen, let's sing.